I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi and welcome to On Brand with Al from me, Rory Sutherland. Each month, I'll be talking to household names and challenger brands about success, challenges, and future opportunities in the advertising, marketing, and media industries. Today, I'm joined by Simon Peel, who's Vice President of Global Marketing at Halion, a consumer health company. Now, for those of you who don't know, Halion was born out of three consumer health businesses from GSK, Novartis, and Pfizer. Uh, in July 2022, Halion emerged and was listed as an independent company on the London and New York Stock Exchange. Although Halion itself is a young company, some of its brands have over 170 years' worth of history, and much of its portfolio are household names you're no doubt familiar with, from Sensodyne to Volterol to Centrum, Anvil, and many, many more. While Halion has just agreed the sale of the iconic lip balm Chapstick brand, it has also launched 52 products in 2022 alone, and last year's UK media spend hit £53 million. 2024 is going to be a very interesting year, for what is a both a new and an old company in the whole field of consumer health and marketing. So, Simon, huge welcome to the podcast. And we'll always start with this, but um, tell us about your career path or journey, um, or however, I always, I never describe mine as a career path. It's too random for that. But um, how did you get where you are today? Put it that way. All right. Well, um, well firstly, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's, um, it's a real uh, pleasure. So thank you. Uh, it's not a massively exciting story to tell, um, unfortunately. So I I started out in media agencies. Uh, when I left university, like a lot of people, I didn't really know what to do. Um, and when I was, I think it was when I was at university, I went and did an internship at Total Media, um, who were based in Kensington in London. Uh, and within Total Media, they had an arm that was um, specifically focused on record labels and providing uh, media planning and buying to the rec- um, to the music industry. So I thought that was pretty fun. Um, it, there seemed to be like quite young and vibrant people in that industry. So it seemed like a, a good place to go after university. Um, anyway, after university, so I must have done the internship whilst at uni, so after university, I joined a media agency called Mindshare. They're part, they are part of WPP. Um, I was there for a couple of years. Then I joined another WPP company called Mediacom, where I was there for about five or six years. Uh, and then I was at a PhD, 
another media agency. Uh, and then I went hindsight. I was a bit frustrated with not being able to affect things as much as I would have liked. So I went to 20th Century Fox to work on their theatrical releases uh, across EMEA uh, and headed up media there and uh, worked in the advertising department. Um, yeah. So they had a lovely building in Soho, like that, lovely cinemas. Um, yeah, I think it's closed down now, but it was a wonderful place. Absolutely fantastic. I remember this. Yeah, I actually remember it. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, the in the creative agencies, the, the whole world has never been quite as much fun since the media people left. And for two reasons, the media people were generally more fun. Uh, and more sociable to begin with. But also, you were, when you had media in-house, you were actually a purchaser, not only a supplier. So you did have access to some forms of entertainment. People were actually interested in you turning up, which I think is something which creative agencies, obviously, you know, you no longer really have photographers as key suppliers. So you're pretty much 100% of your time effectively groveling to people rather than being groveled to. I jokingly said to another colleague of mine, Annette King, that actually going into hospital for three days when you work in a creative agency is in a weird way quite welcome because for a change, they're making a fuss of you rather than you making a fuss of somebody else. But no, it was that, by the way, it was a glorious time to be there. And of course, Mediacom, you probably remember all the people like Sue Uniman and so forth who were there at the time, I expect, were they? And Sue's a lovely lady. Uh, she was the head of strategy. She's she's wonderful. I mean, very strategic, very clever. Um, she's still there. I think she's now at the, the agency that they've created that sort of uh, goes in between Mediacom and Essence. So obviously they're now called Essence Mediacom. And I, I've I think they've created another agency for uh, competitors. So Sue heads up that brilliant lady. Yeah, absolutely right. It was it was really a fan, and actually the whole ecosystem was just fascinating at the time. So you could actually have some sort of uh, subjective conversations, which was which was always nice, rather than this slight. I think this slight mythology of the data will tell us what to do, which really, which really worries me now. Not because the data doesn't sometimes tell you what to do, but because it shortcuts that need to ask wider questions. You know, I think we get to the answer too quickly. Uh, yeah, I think the data is often misleading, isn't it? Um, it's like anything with these sorts of um, things. If you've already got predisposition to find something, you're going to find it. Um, within that data. I think it's kind of the opposite of the scientific method where you're trying to disprove yourself. Often in these types of things in advertising, you're trying to prove yourself and the data helps you. So um, yeah, if you've got this sort of leaning towards the data, I think you'll you'll find it. And then it's very dangerous because it, it kind of reinforces biases that you've already got. So there's actually, there are probably several compounding biases, which is, you know, click-through rates, for example, or engagement. Um, are very easy to measure, whereas wider engagement is hard. But also there's the fast-slow problem. There's data in acquisition which emerges immediately, whereas data in retention is really, really slow. Data data acquisition data is clean. Uh, data retention data, data, retention data is obviously noisy because in between the the stimulus and the results coming in, a lot of other things have happened. So attribution becomes more difficult. So we get absolutely focused with uh, – there was someone at the Department of Transport I was talking to yesterday who said she'd previously worked for an economist who just continually reminded her and said, our job is to quantify what's important, 
not to deem important what we can quantify. And I think, you know, that's that's a lesson for all of us all the time. And as, 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 as I'm quite fond of saying, all big data comes from the same place, the past. So it's heavily biases you towards what happened to be the case previously rather than what could be the case in the future. So I think that uh, it's really, really interesting. Yes, that's true. And um, also the, the sh- it's often short-term data as well because we have a, like a... Um, a bias towards things that I think it's called, oh God, I can't remember what it's called, but the relevance or how close it is, the data. So it's more memorable and stands out in your mind. It's more salient. So because short-term data is often more accessible, it's a quicker proof point and therefore it it tends to be the one that you uh, lean more heavily towards rather than long-term data. So so you went you went client-side to, to 20th Century Fox and then where, where after that? Uh, so after 20th Century Fox, I went to Adidas. Um, so at 20th Century Fox, basically you either move to LA or you move on. So um, my wife at the time and I didn't really want to move to LA. Um, so we moved to Adidas based in Germany. And actually I, I joined their procurement department. So their marketing procurement and they were looking for a director of media procurement. Uh, and I knew that Adidas didn't have a media department. So I thought if I got in there and um, convinced the right people uh, that they would build a media department around um, this kind of idea that I had. And I remember Adidas being, it used to be a fantastic advertiser. In 2012, it did a, a brilliant campaign related to the Olympics, which were in London at the time. They had a number of London underground uh, stations with uh, posters of athletes that were going to compete in the London Olympics. And it was such a great campaign. But then I remember not seeing anything particularly good from them for a couple of years. So I thought that if I could get in there, I could try and encourage them to, uh, certainly when it comes to advertising, to get back to some of that better quality work. Um Anyway, I went in, uh, there was a big procurement project, which is all about savings. And I kind of did the opposite. The The um, consultant that was in there was trying to save hundreds of millions through stupid little tactics. And essentially what I said was, uh, actually, we're not paying the agency properly. We're focused on the wrong KPIs. We've got an opaque model and we should be much more focused on creativity and effectiveness. Now, that, that didn't go down so sweetly in procurement, um, but it went down very well in marketing. So um, the marketing guys took notice. And after about six months, they hired me to be the global head of media. And I, I did that and procurement together. So marketing and finance for about two years until someone uh, in procurement took over from me. That, that actually, it's, it's worth digressing at this point by saying that um, procurement, marketing and media procurement done well is a joy. Um, it's one of those things where bad procurement is absolutely catastrophic. So one of the, one of the issues, and I thought I thought this was confined to media and advertising until I was talking to someone a couple of days ago, who actually does legal procurement. Um, uh, they actually effectively sell legal services to health services. Interestingly, and he said that the huge problem is is that if you they are obsessed with achieving comparison. They need their bidders to be comparable so they can then do a price comparison. Okay, And he said, the biggest way we can add value is to say, we're going to charge the same price, 
but you need less of what we're selling. You don't need as much as what we're selling, so we can save you money by buying less. And they always come back and they say, we're not interested in that. Can you please quote for the same quantity at a lower hourly price? And he says, but that's not my point. My point is that it's not that you're spending too extravagantly, it's that you're spending too much. And they go, yeah, but if you quote for the same hourly price at a lower volume to achieve the same end, we can't compare you with the other companies bidding. I think it's definitely true that uh, effectiveness and efficiency get misconstrued, particularly in finance, where uh, there's a need to chase ROI or looking at short-term savings KPIs, and there's a belief that has a positive effect on the brand or the or the company, and often it doesn't. So people think they're doing the right thing, but actually they're just doing things right. Uh, and that's probably true of GSK. It was kind of notorious in the advertising industry for focusing on cost rather than effectiveness. The rumor, the rumor I heard was that GSK's kind of marketing procurement project was called Project Ivy because it's where they imagined we had lunch every day. That's that's so funny if that's the case. Yeah, that, I, I definitely heard that as a, a word on the street. Yeah. Uh, yes, but actually, one of the reasons I joined Halium was the CMO, a terrific lady called Tamara Rogers. Um, so she was one of the big drivers of me going to GSK or Halion as it is now. Uh, but the other one was actually its previous reputation. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but they had a such a notorious um, view or a notorious reputation for being cheapskates, like essentially trying to cut costs at any cost. So my vanity kind of made me think, well, I can go in there and change that. I can get them to focus much more on effectiveness and growth. So um, those are the two things that encouraged me to go most was Tamara being a fantastic CMO and then to see whether I could take on the challenge of moving a company that's so focused on efficiency and moving them to one that's focused on effectiveness. I, I mean, the, the argument goes even wider than this, if you want to take it really wide in healthcare, which is my question of what's wrong with the placebo effect, okay? Which is that psychological factors in many areas of healthcare, not all, okay, but particularly in terms of pain management, psychological factors are actually a major factor. Now, what tends to happen to prove the pharmacological efficacy of something? They do a randomized control trial with a placebo, and they subtract placebo effect from overall effect and declare that is the efficacy of the product. Now, my argument is they're combinatorial, they're multiplicative, okay? You should be seeking to maximize the placebo effect or to make it a multiplier, not to subtract it, Okay. Because I, you know, I've often said I, I always complain that you can't buy expensive aspirin, and I go, look, I haven't got a fifty p headache. I've got a two pounds eighty headache. Okay, and things like you know, undoubtedly painkillers are more effective. Just as wine tastes better if you tell people it's expensive, painkillers are more effective. It, and also that I was the only person who wanted to defend Nurofen. I know it's a competitor of yours because they produced more or less identical products for the Australian market, which were called Nurofen for period pain. Okay, Neurofen for specific disorders. And then they charged a premium for it. But both the charging of the premium and the specificity, okay, makes the product more effective. The the, the placebo is so that's a wonderful story of this, which is a brilliant anecdotal thing, which appears in this book I'm always recommending called The Experience Machine by Andy Clark, which is all about the peculiarities of human perception in all kinds of ways. 
and how it, you know we haven't evolved to have objective perception. And it's a story of a guy who's hammering some nail in with a nail gun and blasts the nail right through his boot. Okay, so his his foot is now nailed to the floor. Okay, and he's screaming in complete agony. And so the paramedics come along, cut away his boot. And it's then revealed that by some miracle, the nail has actually bypassed his toes and has actually gone right between the big toe and the adjacent toe. And it hasn't even drawn blood. Okay, right. Okay, it hasn't even cut him. Okay, and this guy was literally screaming in complete agony until the moment they revealed they removed his boot and revealed that actually there wasn't even a flesh wound, at which point all the pain went away. So the, the, the book, The Experience Machine, which you must give to all your colleagues in Halion, is basically saying that most of what we perceive is a prediction and we use our senses to error correct for prediction. We don't use our senses to generate information. We, we use prediction to generate the core information. And then we use the available kind of bandwidth of our senses to, in a Bayesian way to kind of correct for it. And so the expectation of pain generates pain. Famously, the guy you need to talk to here, by the way, I'll give him a big plug, is Professor Rob Horn at UCL, who's like Mr. Placebo, good Welshman as well, so I'm always keen on that. But he's actually like, he's Professor Placebo. And he 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 asked exactly the weird same question, which it's not surprising that advertising people ask this question, because we go, what's wrong with intangible value? If you'll pay for it, who cares whether you're paying, who cares whether you're paying for the meal or the experience in the restaurant? It doesn't really matter. The, 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 the extent to which the pleasure was provided by the food manufacturing or the environment marketing, it's senseless to make that kind of, you know, it's a false dichotomy to try and distinguish the two. And so I think, and then, by the way, I've got some, I've got some good heavyweight support for this because I actually went to a dinner um, and ended up sitting next to Sir Patrick Valance, who completely agreed on this point. And he, he was actually the former chief scientific officer at GSK, if I'm right. Okay. And he said, no, 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 this placebo thing, it's not, a, it's not our enemy. We shouldn't be trying, oh, God, it's the bloody placebo effect. We should be going, hey, this placebo effect is great. Let's see how we can magnify it. Because pharmaceutical companies spend big on the scientific research, pharmacological research, as is good and right, okay? But if you acknowledge the fact that this is, that this is the two are complementary, not in opposition, you should equally spend big on marketing research. And of course, GSK had this brilliant marketing success, which was Night Nurse, which was a product that treated cold and flu, which unfortunately sent people to sleep, right? And the guy said, look, if you, you know, obviously you can't drive and operate heavy machinery, but if we call the product night nurse, I don't know if he came up with the name instantaneously, but he said, if we position this as a nighttime or bedtime cold and flu remedy, the fact that it sends you to sleep isn't a bug, it's a feature, right? That was a brilliant, I mean, a genius marketing case of what you might call marketing R&D, which is don't just think about what the product does, think about what else we could make it do. No one is prepared to actually optimize for perception rather than optimizing for reality. And it drives me nuts. <laughs> uh, I believe the confectionery industry is doing something with this, aren't they? I, I think that they've got shrinkflation where chocolate bars have become something like 15% smaller over the last 10 or 15 years. And um, I believe it's based on some scientific study that uh, they found that people 
didn't really notice when things were shortened or decreased in small little increments until sort of 10 years later when they look back and they're like, oh my God, that's totally different to where we came from. I mean, I, I, you know, I think fundamentally, just as in restaurants, understand this instinctively, because if you don't understand it, you're out of business, which is the value is as much in the intangibles as in the product. Uh, I was talking to Jay Rayner. I, I made him get a big gaff by calling Jay Rayner a food critic. And he said, I'm not a food critic. I'm a restaurant critic. They're, they're totally separate things. Which is really, really interesting. He said, no, I just focus on the food. He said, there are shit restaurants which serve brilliant food. And they're actually brilliant restaurants which serve not shit food, but pretty average food. Okay, right. You know, and um, and so, um, uh, you know, I think that that's the great problem we've had is we, our obsession with dividing things into individual components and optimizing the parts causes, makes us blind to what's really going, what, what effectiveness really means. Top two challenges brought to you by Alf Insights. Alf Insight helps media owners, agencies, and marketing service providers improve their new business pipelines by equipping them with in-depth insights, accurate information, and daily news updates on the leading and challenger brands in the UK. Alf also helps sports clubs, venues, and charities with new partnership deals. Alf Insight identifies the branch to target at the right time, providing everything you need to tailor the perfect pitch. Visit alfinsight, that's alfinsight.com, or click the link in the episode description to find out more. Two top challenges. So uh, the, two, the, two, the two challenges are, first of all, it's kind of brand specific. How has Halion been approaching consumer behavioral changes brought on by the cost of living crisis, i.e. people switching to own brand products and trading down? That's the first top challenge. Ta-da. And secondly, what's the biggest challenge you think for the consumer by which I suppose we mean over the counter and and DCC. Uh, what what's the um, uh, off the shelf? What what are the biggest challenges for the overall category as well? How do you see it playing out? Um, so I I think the answers to both of those questions are quite similar um, because what happens to Halion tends to be a representation of the wider market industry society. Um, Halion's a relatively new company, so it it was introduced to the markets in July 2023. So for us or for the organization at the moment, one of the, the key things is how do we keep shareholders happy and how do we deliver short-term uh, revenue and results that are going to make them happy? But then how do we do so by also considering that there's a long-term view and we need to build towards that. And I, I think that's probably the same in, certainly in society where we're, we're trying to manage these short-term issues at the moment, uh, but then also being cognizant that, you know, there are long-term issues as well, like climate versus the cost of living as, a, as an example, climate being long-term and uh, cost of living being short. So I think, and it's probably the same in the advertising industry as well. You've got a lot of organizations that are trying to grapple with this issue so um they would be the two i mean they're basically the same answer halion is um grappling with short and long and i think um society and uh industries are as well yeah one of the areas that we've been trying to focus on is uh, an emotional connection or at least a salience with with people um because obviously you can go out and buy um, supermarket-owned products, but it's about 
differentiating and being distinctive from those and creating a trust with those brands. Um, you know, we're, we're working in a low interest category. But it's very high interest when you have a problem. No one wakes yeah. up in the morning with a headache mm. um, thinking, I've, you know, I've got to go out and get this brand. They're just thinking about paracetamol. But it's kind of our job to make sure that when they are thinking about paracetamol, they do think about us. So, yes. And to have that sense of a trusted brand as well, which I, I don't think you get so much from supermarket um, owned. I suppose you have a difficult problem there as marketers because the probably the main return on marketing in this category, which is a need state category, is actually the ability to command and maintain a price premium. And of course, that's harder to prove than incremental sales. So you have again this problem where attribution becomes this driving force. And actually, it's it's massive. It leads to massive quantification bias. I mean, I, I was talking to someone last night at a dinner who thought that the invention of the spreadsheet had made us all stupider because it forced us to reduce to numbers, uh, either to reduce to numbers things which can't be reduced accurately to numbers or which aren't linear, or it led us just to ignore things that can't be numerically expressed because you can't, they don't fit in your spreadsheet. Uh, there's definitely something in that. I know. Um... Obviously, there's a huge fashion towards generative AI at the moment. Um, and obviously, that's all based on historical data. So it takes historical data and then creates new generations of it or generative um, iterations of it. So everything's codified. But there are some things in life that just aren't codified. There's some things that are about soul and connection. And there's a lot of things that we just don't understand, but we have um, an intimacy towards it. Uh, I, I think the danger with a lot of these things, particularly Excel or AI, um, is that we buy the insights and this, this sort of miracle results that they're they're positioning. And actually, they could be reinforcing a bias that we're trying to eradicate or we're trying to address. So I don't know if that's making sense, but definitely there's a problem related to this over-codification of data and, you know, I don't think Excel is the root cause of it, but I, I think it represents a larger problem, which is that potentially we devalue artistic merit and creativity when we should be valuing it much more. Yeah, it represents the problem because the guy with the pie chart and the, and the, uh, and the spreadsheet will tend to win an argument over the guy who has the abstract nouns, you know. Yeah, well, that's just creative and media for you, isn't it? That's basically what I mean. I, I always thought, by the way, I still think the separation of creative media was dumb. I think it made sense from a narrow, short-term commercial perspective. Did it add value to clients? Absolutely quite the reverse. But do you think we'll see a change, Rory? Do you think we'll see a reverse? Uh, I, I would... I I would dearly love to see Ogilvy bringing at least media planning partly within within the what you might call within the overall process. Yeah, I I, I would dearly love to see that. Yeah. Well, maybe that's next, Rory. Uh, like bringing Ogilvy and Mindshare back together. Uh, it could be the new WPP uh, amalgamation of agencies. I mean, interestingly, CHI CHI and the AND partnership refused to separate the two. And I would argue that the, it, what was crazy was it happened at a time, you could argue a little bit, okay, in the late 80s, early 90s, you could argue, well, we're going to do a TV campaign, so what particular ads are bought is immaterial to the creative development of the ad, okay? Now we're in a world where it's a high-context world 
where what you say, who you say it to, and when you say it are all totally interdependent. And actually, the the way you get the best answer is to triangulate all three, the when, the who, and the, and the what you say, okay? And therefore, the separation of the two was a massive exercise in value, just in value destruction and actually diminished our ability to solve problems. It was done. It, it's a very common thing in businesses where um, legibility and neatness of structure from the top, okay, triumph over value. People love running a company, which is divided into these neat divisions and silos because, you know, it makes comparison and all those things so easy. But actually, the real value is created horizontally. That's the problem. The companies are organized vertically. And the, and the as, as again with Night Nurse, the value was created horizontally, which was effectively a scientific conversation taking place with a marketing mindset. Have you heard this one? Um, I think it relates, uh, and I'm sure you must have heard it, Rory, uh, but it's the anecdote by Richard Thaler that talks about something called the dumb principle. Have you heard this one? No, I haven't heard this. I should have done, but yeah. So Thaler was conducting a workshop with a CEO and I think it was 23 managing directors or department heads looking after this publishing firm. And they were given this task, which was essentially, or as a question, would you take a 50-50 bet? Uh, and on one side of the 50-50 bet, you stood the chance of winning $2 million dollars. But on the other side, the flip of the coin, you had the potential of losing $1 million. So it's essentially asking uh, these 23 people whether they would take the bet or not. And of the 23, only two said yes. But had all 23 of them said yes, the rules of probability on flipping a coin 50-50 meant that they would have made $11.5 million. But the fact that it was only two that went for the choice meant the the most that they could earn was four million. And the point about all of this is organizational silos create vested interests. And those managing directors were too risk averse yeah. to think about the or or not incentivized to think about the organization as a whole. They were incentivized to think about their own jobs and their own roles. You've you've created these silos and you've basically created a case where there are basic. I mean, you know, is is marketing a cost center or a uh, a value creator? Okay. Well, the only obvious answer is it's a bit of both, and you have, you know, but everybody wants to put something into a pocket where it's just treated as a cost, and uh, and it obviously, you know, obviously, you know, uh, it, 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 it's a daft way to frame it. Okay, because it's. You know, and so that you're absolutely right by creating these silos and then dry, effectively you drive incrementalism. And you also drive this great book I also recommend, Gillian Tett's book, The Silo. I think it's called The Silo Effect, which is all about this that silos are valuable in some ways because of specialism, but they also create complete blindness to anything that exists beyond the kind of focus of the silo. And it comes down, it comes down to W. Edwards Deming who said, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, to optimize the whole, you have to sub-optimize the parts. And so most organizations, really, so he was he was the guru of, of Japanese economic revival. He was an American, Welsh American, I'm proud to say. But he was, um, uh, he was an American, um, uh, I think, I think that Edward, the, Deming or something was on the Mayflower or something, but he was this extraordinary genius in terms of sort of uh, proper efficiency studies. And he said, if you just optimize the parts, you're not opt- you're suboptimizing the whole. And so we've created business where the principal and I, I blame management consultants for this. The principal activity is is based on the assumption that if you optimize the parts, you'll optimize the whole. And it's it it, it it's really really terrible. I guess it's easier for management consultants to sell piecemeal, isn't it? Because um, it's easier to optimize individually and also sell it individually uh, to prove out the effectiveness of those individual products. And then they can do it in the short term and take it to another company and do it again. So I guess that's why it, it works like that. It's invested to make a short-term profit. I've got a whole spiel, which I'll happily deliver to Haley at any time you like, which is about that actually... If you look at great inventors, they're actually marketers, okay? Whether it's, you know, Colonel Sanders or Henry Ford or Edison, okay, or James Watt, half their genius went into actually selling the idea. And in medicine, it would include, uh, you know, I mean, I always assumed naively that Edward Jenner came up with vaccination. Everybody said, brilliant, Ed, you're a fucking hero. You've solved our smallpox problem, okay? He basically had to spend his whole life effectively fighting for the idea. And there were breakthrough things. I mean, there was an earlier breakthrough where someone called Elizabeth Wortley Montague persuaded the royal family to be variolated, which is, in other words, exposed to a mild smallpox dose in part of the body, which she brought over from Turkey, where her husband had been a diplomat. And her great marketing coup was getting the royal family to adopt it, which then made it kind of automatically respectable. So actually, medical successes... Um, are if you dig them back, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, a really fascinating one is called stomach ulcers, which was it was believed to it, it, apparently in communist China they all knew that stomach ulcers were bacterial, but nobody took their medicine seriously, and it was this poor Australian guy who ended, you know, who before he got the Nobel Prize was kind of vilified for years for having this dissenting view. And the difficulty there in the breakthrough is it's marketing your idea is actually the difficult part of the problem. Being right is comparatively easy. It's changing people's minds that's the real struggle.
Yeah, so it's interesting that dissenters are often right, um, aren't they? But they're often the ones that um, get accused of being wrong and they have to go up against an organisation or systems that are desperate to prove them wrong. And actually, it transpires that those dissenters are the right ones after all. And I often worry about this because I often think that the most valuable outcome of doing an advertising pitch or indeed a media pitch is that as a byproduct of that process, you might actually come to a, a more interesting question. Not a better answer to the existing question. You come up with a better question. And if we if we just efficientize everything with AI and we remove we shortcut the process so we get straight to the answer. Yeah, we've got straight to the answer to the original question, but we've also frozen out the opportunity to ask a better question in the first place. Really interesting. I, th- I think creative testing is having that effect on creative agencies a little. I worry a little bit about uh, testing culture. Firstly, I agree with it. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, And it's good to test things and um, see whether things are working or they're not. Um, But the thing that worries me is that it's only kind of short-term returns. We're only looking at whether it's testing versus one region in another in a short short period of time. It doesn't look at those effects in the long term. And consequently, they may get overlooked. I mean, a really, really good testing culture, which allows for failure and actually silliness, is a great, great thing. Okay. I mean, genuinely, one of my arguments would be, if you have a product that isn't selling, okay, and people say, we're going to cut the price to sell more. I would always say, if I'm in an organization, test that, but also test putting the price up. Now, putting the price up is less likely to succeed, okay, on balance. But if it does succeed, it's a much more valuable discovery that you can put the price up and sell more than the fairly banal discovery of we can sell more by giving it away, which I mean, it's not really that surprising. And so, yet test the opposite would be a really, really good mantra. And and the people who do it well, which include things like Amazon, Amazon. I don't know. I don't know if it's a brilliant psychological company, but it looks like a brilliant psychological company because it tests. And Sky, I was talking to someone at Sky last night who'd worked at Sky, and I said they're really good at behavioral science. I think because all the things I get from Sky seem really behaviorally optimized to me. And he said they don't have a behavioral science department. I said, I said, well, how come they're so good? And he said because they have a testing culture and it amounts to it kind of amounts to the same thing. So, I mean, maybe the job of our behavioral science practice isn't actually to practice behavioral science. It's just to encourage a test and learn culture, you know, test the opposite. And a fascinating thing I learned from a guy in performance marketing was that the more things you test, the more progress you make. That's not that surprising, right? But what is surprising is it, it actually is, it, it's, supralineal you'd expect that if you test two or three things you get some benefits and then they decrease as you test more and more kind of trivial and silly things but he said his discovery was it's actually the opposite it's actually not a law of diminishing returns it's it's actually a law of gained returns and his theory was he was a really good mathematician who'd ended up effectively in a performance marketing business he said his theory was that the people who test a hell of a lot also test the silly things and it's the silly things which are, you know, when I say silly, I'm, you know, they test the counterintuitive things, the surprising things. And it's those things where you get your real payback. So, so there are organizations like Acado, which can do long term, effectively long term testing, because 
you know, they have really, really long swathes of data. And they tell me that, you know, I, I better not give away their trade secrets, but they discover like really small trivial things that in research don't do very well, that don't really make much economic sense. Um, oh, well, I can tell you about one, which is the green van, okay, which is nudging people to choose delivery slots where there's already a van delivering nearby. Now, that makes a monumental difference to their business because a hell of a lot of people are totally undecided. But I'm in all day. I don't really care whether the Ocado guy comes at three or six. And if there's a green van at six o'clock, you go, bingo, you've made my choice easier. I'll go for the green one. And again, you know, you know, it's one of those things where really small things can have a huge, huge effect. And luckily, Ocado, of course, have the ability to measure it. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I might spend the, but but you're absolutely right, which is you have the short term bias, which is things that at the bottom of the funnel things win over top of the funnel things. I know the funnel isn't really a funnel, but I'm using it as a handy metaphor, etc. Okay, and so you get that, and all, but but um, equally, I mean, I think often people, uh, you know, the, you you need you need imagination and hypothesis before you test. Okay, because otherwise you go mad. Well, you also need to build it the long term, don't you, in um, the testing culture? Because otherwise, by very nature, uh, everything will prove out the most um, short-term result. Uh, so you'll never know what's necessarily going to work in the long term um, because mean, you're not measuring it. There's probably an interesting case where Amazon, which doesn't make many mistakes, but I think it might have made a mistake with Choice Architecture over Amazon Marketplace because they've assumed that everybody likes maximal choice, okay, as an assumption. And actually, one of the great values of a physical retailer is curation. You know, if this is... We won't stock this unless it's reasonably repeatedly popular. Now, there is a bit of good news. You know, things like loyalty cards. Um, Ocado, quite rightly, I, I don't think I'm giving away a secret here, um, but Ocado and, and likewise people with loyalty cards make a distinction between products which sell to a lot of people infrequently and products which a few people buy very regularly, Okay. So there's a Korean hot sauce where every time I order from Mercado, I order two bottles of this Korean hot sauce. Now, they're not going to get rich on the back of this sauce, okay, because not that many people are into Korean hot sauce. But on the other hand, it's my reason for doing the whole shop at Ocado is I run out of this stuff and I know I can get it at Ocado and it would take me and I couldn't find it somewhere else. So they understand that difference between, you know, many people doing something occasionally and a few people doing something a lot which is a really important distinction. Now, obviously, the first data emerges quickly. A lot of people a lot of people doing something once emerges quite quickly, you know, and a few people doing something frequently and repeatedly is much slower. So, yeah, you've got to, I think you've got to compensate for all this stuff, undoubtedly, because otherwise you become absurdly over-focused on something which, as you said, you may be optimizing a part at the expense of the whole. And, um, you know, I, I, I do wonder about that. Now, it is interesting if you go to Amazon, right? They visually try and limit choice. They don't really want you to get to page two because they know if you've looked at 60 toasters, you're actually probably not going to buy a toaster at all or you're going to go off to which to research toasters because your mind is blown. So that's kind of, you know, that's an interesting kind of thing. But, but I, I, actually, having said that, I mean, having said that, test and learn is a great way of winning arguments with the finance function, where, you know, 
who will who will refuse to believe you. I mean, one of the problems, by the way, which you'll encounter, which is a weird bit of advice, which which came to me from a guy who I think it was at a big hotel chain. He said they changed something about their their advertising approach, and they said it has not it has an ROI of thirty five to one. And the fight now, this is really interesting. That doesn't surprise me. There are butterfly effects all over the place, right? But the finance guy said that's rubbish. You don't get an ROI of thirty five to one. It's rubbish. He said it's absolute rubbish. Go back and do your maths again. Right? And the guy went back and did his maths and said, you're absolutely right. I was wrong. It's actually 37. <laughs> and it suddenly occurred to me that if you're in this very narrow reductionist kind of mechanistic world, you see everything in terms of incremental improvement. Okay. You know, we reduced our costs here and our supply chain has been streamlined over here. And roughly speaking, kind of pain and reward are sort of proportionate. And as a consequence of that kind of thinking, those people don't believe in butterfly effects. They don't believe there's an alchemical, magical kind of bullet that can actually solve a lot of your problems. I mean, something we did for British Airways cost £25,000 to do. It made them an extra £10 million in revenue, right? Okay. Now, finance people aren't thinking that way. They're thinking, you know, everything is only optimized apart and it has a proportional effect on the whole. But actually, in an interconnected system, there are these butterfly effects and no one, first of all, no one's looking for them. And then what's worse still, they don't believe them when they happen. I wonder if it's different in distressed businesses because uh, for those, you either strip it really quickly and sell it on and or you have to take a risk and do something creative or behave differently. So when a business is operating really well, maybe you become more risk averse and it's more about the increment. But when a business in, is in disarray, then suddenly you have to make this large choice. You either strip it and sell it on, or you create significant change. You could say, okay, uh, all right, okay, P&G, who are kind of the sharpest. I, I don't want to blow smoke up the competition, but they're kind of the smartest tools in the box quite often, okay? And you can argue that what they did with Old Spice was totally rational, which is okay, we've got this product which is slowly dying. We have two choices, basically. We kill it, we let it slowly die. Well, three choices. We let it slowly die, we kill it off, or we take a bit of a bet, okay? Now, if you take that bet, the ad campaign, which was highly eccentric and brilliant and actually rescued the brand, might have failed, you know, because that's just how it works. What if it fails? It kills off the brand a bit earlier. Who cares? We know it doesn't work. Okay, move on. We'll move, direct our attention somewhere else. Now, equally, if you're working on Tide, which is like 70% of the US laundry detergents market, you do want to be, you know, that you do want to be hyper cautious. You don't want to start doing wacky campaigns for Tide, which, you know, I don't know, you know, based on alienating Trump supporters or something. Right? Okay, you really don't want to go there, right? Okay. And so, so there's a sort of, there's a whole question of upside, downside asymmetry, which I learned from Nassim Taleb, you know, and there's a great book, Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets, which is all about, it's not about the probability that it happens, it's about the returns to it happening and what the counterfactual would have been. Okay. And so I don't think, I think advertising agencies go, oh, you've got to be brave, you know, and you go, well, yeah, yeah, there are situations where you should be, and I, one of the things I'd love to do, with, I'd love to do it with you, I'd love to do it with Nestle, I'd love to do it with P&G, is go, go and take two or three, like, really interesting dying brands which don't get any advertising support anymore, and where, you know, and just say, okay, can we actually do a bit of, can we bring this back from the dead? You know, I said to yesterday to a food company, look, take a failing brand and just rebrand it as an air fryer product and see what happens. 
you know, you can do that on the packaging, right? You know, and then everybody with an air fryer goes, well, I wouldn't normally have bought that, but if it's perfect for my news air fryer, I'll give it a go, you know? And, you know, who knows? Okay, so, you know, I think that kind of, I, I, I think it's always interesting that I think in, in Mark Ritson kind of um, Byron Sharp terms, it's right to focus your really major brand building media effort on fewer brands. That totally buy that, okay? But actually, have a kind of have a kind of skunk works, which takes a. I mean, Old Spice was kind of too good a brand to kill off in terms of residual shit. You know, you could have killed it off. You could have made the case, but give it a last gasp. Give it a la- give it a last chance at a, a roll. I wonder. Yeah. If when you go through that stage, so say, for instance, you take a brand like Old Spice that is underperforming and then you reinvigorate it, that once you have reinvigorated it and it's a success, whether that then becomes about incrementality as well until that brand starts to diminish. It's almost like a another cycle. You You kind of save it, you get it into a really good place, but then when it's in a good place, you're really risk averse to take it any further. And then it just becomes about this incrementality. I wonder if that's like the circle of brands or the cycle of brands. Because you had that thing, didn't you, where during COVID, in the end, it proved to be unnecessary. But a load of companies were basically given the brief, okay, can you manufacture a, um, uh, a ventilator? Okay. Now, the process of developing a ventilator under normal circumstances would have stretched into decades, right? But the great thing was you you had this sudden thing, which is we we can only see two few. In other words, where you had a mode where being successful made you a hero, and failing was just what was expected. Okay, it completely changed the mindset, where suddenly the speed at which things happened was was just monumental. So you know. And so you got literally companies which generally developed a working ventilator within months rather than decades, and some of them, some of them probably would have worked, and some of them wouldn't have done. But it, that does really interest me, which is that what we've created, I think, and I, I, I'd say I kind of, I kind of slightly blame people like Martin Sorrell for this bit because they went around the world going, "Don't worry about Europe and the United States; they're all moribund. China's where all the growth's coming from. Just get into China and sell in China, okay?" and what that did is in the UK and the US and places, it created this scarcity mindset, which is, you know, it's a bit like, you know, the last days of the British Empire. Our job is to manage decline as painlessly as possible. And what you'll have noticed the same thing. When you first went into the media business, there was an opportunistic mindset. It was a mindset of abundance. Hey, we could do this and achieve that. And we've replaced it with this mindset of let's try and do less with less or let's try and do the same with less or let's try and do the same but shittier with slightly less okay and that's the whole mindset which predominates in kind of western hemisphere business i would argue well i mean european as well business and 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 um actually this is there's absolutely you know i mean people are actually richer than but what's ironic about this is okay we talk this doom gloom cost of living crisis but people are appreciably richer than they were, right, back in 1988. But we're kind of acting as if everybody's poor. And, you know, I mean, okay, I'm not happy with the, um, by the way, just to be clear, I'm not, you know, not some nutter. I'm not happy with the way the wealth is distributed, but there is more of it around, right? You know, and yet we're behaving as though, you know, we're behaving as though it's kind of like the America during the Depression. 
there was that book that came out a few years ago, isn't there? Um, I think it was called Factfulness. And it basically took a load of stats and it demonstrated that despite the doom and gloom, and to be honest, I'm not not totally convinced by all of this, but despite all of the doom and gloom, most countries and people are much financially better off and their health is much better in a much better situation than it ever has been. Yeah, poverty, real extreme poverty worldwide has been declining for years, for example. You know, people living in absolute states of poverty. But but they even went to like, I, I, the guy who was Danish, I think, was the guy. He was Scandinavian. And, and he actually went to people like partners at Goldman Sachs. And they said, well, we're people living in poverty under whatever it is, X dollars a day. Uh, other numbers going up or down. And most of the partners at Goldman Sachs thought the numbers of people who are extremely poor were going up. Okay. Nearly all his basic good news story comes as a surprise to everybody who watches his presentation. And, um, you know, it really bothers me this because it basically puts the finance department in control of everything. And basically it means that what we, we, we achieve success by having people who can say no to almost everything. You know, everything that doesn't have a robust case, you basically say no to. And that wasn't how these businesses got started. In fact, what's really interesting is that the greatest period of probably of human innovation in history, okay, some some people believe, was America during the 1930s. And it was because of the Depression. They thought, well, we're probably going to go bankrupt. Let's let's give it a kind of, let's give it an old spice. Let's, let, let's just have one last kind of tilt at the wheel, right? And you know, out of that came yeah, extra. I mean, okay, it helped that you had electrification and stuff going on underneath. But it was an extraordinary period. You know, if you look at how cars improved, how you know, I mean, that was probably in my grandmother's life. That was you know, the thirties was like the the period where shit got really good. <laughs> you know, aeroplanes, etc. Wasn't that Roosevelt? Didn't he introduce Plan B to make everything um, much better for everyone? It's kind of a redistribution of wealth in the United States. Uh, well, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I suppose it would have been, yeah, it would have been that era, wouldn't it? So post-depression era. I have a more fundamental problem. I really worry about this, which is when we make all our products cheaper, okay, um, we're not actually making our consumers richer. We're just increasing property prices. Because it seems to me that property and accommodation just is this massive, great siphon which sucks up discretionary wealth, where most people buy the most expensive house they can, or in the case of people who rent, okay, our, our younger staff, accommodation and transportation is 50% of their after-tax expenditure. So we give them money, then it's tax. Well, no, no, let's be honest. You give us money, okay? Then there are a whole load of inefficiencies like property and overhead and finance and everything else. And then some of the money make, that, that Halion has given us makes its way to a copywriter. And then the copywriter gets taxed, you know, marginally at 40%, okay? Well, I hope, so, you know, you know, I hope most, you know, okay? And then 50% of what's left over goes in commuting costs and housing costs, okay? So... All I'm doing, I think, if I make a product cheaper, is just making buy-to-let landlords and property owners richer at the expense of actually discretionary income. You know, I, I, um, I, 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 I really, really worry about this, that there's this fundamental problem. Unless we start taxing property, okay, there's this fundamental problem that the economy becomes mostly extractive. And the creative part of the economy that's actually generating value is actually a small... Now, one great thing about America in the 30s is I bet property was fucking dirt cheap, right? If you have a really good crash, right? Okay. You know, and you see what happened. Silicon Valley started. 
because property was cheap there. You know, it was in people's garages, right? Okay, and you know, America's always had this advantage that you can live places really, really cheaply. And now, of course, Silicon Valley is absurd. You get these people paid a fortune. They're living. I mean, I never at New York. Okay, I was just had these friends who are New Yorkers, and they worked at Ogilvy in New York. And they were really convinced because they had this big shop job in Ogilvy, New York. They were really successful, right? And then you realize where they lived. It was like a pretty shitty apartment and they had to get up and move their car across the street. Meanwhile, their parents like lived in Wisconsin, okay, and had a five-car garage with three Corvettes, right? And, you know, like a telly in every room. But as far as these people in Ogilvy, New York were concerned, their parents were complete losers and they were <laughs> successful. I was kind of going, I'm not, I'm not sure you've quite thought this one through, to be absolutely honest. It's weird, isn't it? It's really, really weird. Yeah. It's that paradox of success. For me, maybe that's your point. Uh, maybe the reality is the world is getting richer and healthier, although I would argue it's also getting uh, more unequal in certain parts. Like the richest get much richer and the poorer get much poorer. So maybe the distribution isn't fair, but as a whole, maybe it is uh, richer and healthier. But um, I think... In general, it's not helped by the news outlets that are very much focused on um, negative stories. And obviously, because humans instinctively are, are more predisposed to the negative, we read it and we see that those things are happening or there's a perception of those things are happening. So it reinforces this idea of doom and gloom when perhaps things aren't quite as bad as they appear. So, so, you know, you have this fundamental kind of economic depressive mentality. I think that's true. And actually, uh, we've got to be really careful with environmentalism because new, new forms of renewable energy can mean clean, fairly abundant, fairly cheap energy if we play it right, right, okay. And undoubtedly, we need to change patterns of consumption. I'm not denying that because there, there are forms of consumption which create a bit of happiness, which are very, very bad for the planet. And there are forms of consumption which create a lot of happiness, which aren't bad for the planet at all. So we definitely need to reshape consumption. So there's something on sustainability within this as well. Someone was telling me the other day, um, within the environmental industries, uh, particularly when it comes to clothing and polyester clothing, there's a lot of companies that are using um, or recycling polyester. And that seems really good, right? Like that's great that they're taking polyester and they're recycling it. However, recycled polyester can't be recycled again, apparently. So it can't be broken down. So there's this perception that we're doing the right thing, but actually by using or creating recycled polyester, we're actually having a long-term negative impact on uh, the environment. So there's this weird sort of dichotomy, like you're, short-term you're doing this thing to get rid of polyester, uh, and recycle it and doing the right thing. And then long-term, it's actually having a negative impact. And by the way, I mean, uh, I mean, probably the answer is some, you know, in other words, probably the answer is to tax things for two reasons. One, the tax goes to something worthwhile, like social care and so on. But secondly, taxing activities, which are what Jeff Bezos would call a one-way door, okay, um, in other words, when you're using a re when you're exploiting a resource which where the value lies in its scarcity, in a sense, okay, the the the, the transition to energy taxes away from uh, income taxes would seem a pretty sensible thing to do, actually, um, because then the you know the costs would be reflected in what we buy. 
and what would actually happen, I think, is that costs aren't really just costs; they're also signals. Okay, so actually, it would change. Doing that would change what's fashionable. Okay, and it would change the way people think about things. That's totally true. Uh, I always thought that everyone thought exactly like me, and I couldn't understand when you know, I was putting this sort of uh, argument forward, and no one was listening, or they just sort of shat on it. And then I realized that actually <laughs> most people don't think like that and don't think like us. And actually most normal people have other things to worry about than the stuff that we do. If, if, I were in media, if I were in media planning, I'd always go, the first things to consider are radio, direct mail, brand partnerships, sonic branding, right? Because in my years... Okay, in my years in advertising, I never saw I never saw a radio campaign that didn't work. Okay, right? It always works, but it's the first thing to get cut when the budget gets cut, and so it's got this, you know. And I think the you know, good media planner is a basically. I mean, what was the great what the greatest bit of media planning was HSBC buying all those jetways at airports, right? Because they spotted something which was totally underused as a, as an advertising asset, and you know that was just genius. I remember the agency Naked, which I don't think exists anymore, but it did a really good campaign years and years ago. I think it was my favorite campaign ever. So basically the Telegraph got a new sales director and they needed to drum up business from media buyers. So you know, it had good circulation, but it wasn't getting its fair share of revenue. So instead of running you know, a big campaign all over London, they did this really clever thing where they found out where print buyers um, went at lunchtime. And typically all agencies have um, a pub where certain buyers congregate. And essentially they put in lots and lots of uh, the Telegraph in these pubs and they had people reading the Telegraph and they put up posters of the Telegraph and the beer mats were of the Telegraph. And essentially what then happened is the print buyers assumed that everyone was reading in the Telegraph, and therefore, when they went back to the office after, you know, five or six pints at lunchtime, they were calling up the Telegraph to get um, better rates and to try and buy uh, space for their clients. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. This has been fantastic fun. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Rory. You've been listening to On Brand with Alf and me, Rory Sutherland. If you want to do business with Halion, as you should, or any other consumer health brand, contact the Alf Insight team on their website, which is www.alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F-Insight.com. And you can also find the link in the episode description. The series, as ever, is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Content. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, give us a like and give us a share. So... Until next time, thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.